I'll invite you now to stand with me. We're going to read all of Genesis 16 together this morning. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked upon me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring of the way of Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered from the multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael Behold, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Laho Lorai. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the, son, the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask this morning that you would first and foremost clear our minds. This has been for likely many or most even in this room, a distracting week. As we close our eyes, many likely see red states and blue states and maps and colors changing. Father, would you remove from our focus the temporal and put in our eyes the eternal? Would you help us, God? to see past what is happening immediately around us for these few moments as we turn our attention to the truth of your word. God, would you instruct our hearts and minds today? Make us more like Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's message is entitled, Shortcut to Promise. We don't take shortcuts, at least in the original term, as often anymore uh, because we all now have, or just about all of us, have uh, devices in our pockets that are smarter than us that can tell us the shortest way. 
that I can remember growing up as a kid, going on vacation. My family so often would vacation in Colorado. And um, no, we would not drive from, we would not fly from South Louisiana to Colorado every summer. We would drive. How much fun that was. I can remember being thrown in the back of a Suburban with the seat taken out with eight other grandchildren. None of us buckled. None of us in a legitimate seat at all driving the 24 hours from Louisiana to Colorado. And every now and then I would hear my father, my uncle, or my grandfather, whoever was driving, say, we're going to take a shortcut. You know what that normally meant, right? It's going to take us longer to get there. Shortcuts rarely work out the way that you intend them to. And here today in the text, we are going to see a shortcut, not one on a road from one place to another, but a shortcut to the promise Abram and Sarah got tired of waiting for God to fulfill his promise to them, and so they are going to seek to make it happen on their own. Now, this is not the first mistake that we see Abram make here in these uh, 11 chapters that tell us of his life. That first mistake was all the way in the end of chapter 12 where we see him go to Egypt because there is famine in the land instead of staying in the promised land. This mistake seemed reasonable to us as there was a famine and in Canaan and not in Egypt, but it led to devastating sin as Abram chose to lie about his relationship with his wife who ultimately is taken into marriage by Pharaoh. After the Lord sends plagues upon Pharaoh's house, he allows Abram, Sarai, and all the wealth they had amassed to leave Egypt. And it would seem as if that part of the story was over, that that one shortcut did not lead to further devastating consequences. But several weeks ago when I was preaching chapter 12, I kind of previewed this moment that we will get to here in chapter 16 as very likely as a part of that wealth that, that Abram had amassed in his time in Egypt with these gifts of Pharaoh given to him because of who Pharaoh thought was his sister, who was ultimately his wife, One of those gifts was likely a servant girl named Hagar, who this text identifies as an Egyptian woman. This is very likely the only place that they would have come into possession of such a servant. And that one shortcut in Genesis chapter 12, which already was devastating to the relationship of husband and wife, is now going to be even more so as that one shortcut leads to another. Small acts of disobedience lead to colossal ones. And while the Lord is always faithful, even in our faithlessness, the temporal consequences of our actions are still ours to bear. And that is what we will see here in this text this morning. We will see shortcut, faithlessness, we, we will see faithfulness of God and yet consequences because disobedience in this world reaps temporal consequences. We begin with a proposed shortcut where Sarah suggests to Abram that he would bear children by her servant. Go back to the beginning of the text. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children This has become a constant theme. 
nearly every chapter, except for the one where we see Abram with military conquest. This idea of children and, and lineage is, uh, is crucial to our understanding of the text. And so we're reminded by the author that once again, Sarai is barren. But she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. You see the juxtaposition of these two statements, both of them seemingly just being informational, one telling us that Sarai had no children, the other that she has a servant. Both of those taken independent of one another are just pieces of information. But when you take those two pieces of information and compare them to one another and look at what then bright idea pops into her head in verse 2. Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain a children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, to a modern reader, to a 21st century Westerner, this seems very strange. Now, you may know this story It may be that you grew up in church and have been around long enough to know what happens primarily at least in the life of uh, of Abram who would become Abraham and his wife and you maybe even know what's going to happen in the chapters later where God is ultimately going to bless them with children and so maybe this doesn't seem so strange to you because you've heard it before but there's likely people sitting in this room watching with us right now online who have never heard this before and think what in the world is going on? Who does this woman think she is that she can take her servant and just haphazardly seemingly give her over to her husband and say, here, she'll bear children in my place and those children will be mine. Because that's what Sarah is saying. She is saying, take my servant, have relations with her, my husband, and if she bears children, those children will not belong to her, they will belong to me. While that seems very strange to a modern ear, it was not strange in ancient times. Actually, it was incredibly common. What likely was strange is that Sarai had waited this long to attempt this plan. What was likely odd within the culture is that she had made it this long in a wealthy household. And Abram's household was wealthy and it, was, it had grown in wealth during his time in Egypt and during his military conquest against the Mesopotamian kings. But he did not start out poor. Abram in the Ur of Chaldeans started out in a wealthy household. And so for this woman who would have had servants at her disposal her entire married life to have waited this long, it would have been strange. You see, even outside of the biblical text, history tells us that both in Mesopotamia and in ancient Egypt, this was a common practice. There are marriage uh, agreements carved in stone from the Middle Bronze Age when this is taking place that actually outline in detail when this would happen, under what circumstances and how long one might wait before giving their servant over to their husband. These marriage contracts give details of how, this, uh, how the husband is supposed to treat the wife and how the wife is supposed to treat the servant and what happens if the servant then takes the place of the wife. You see, it was in great detail. These cultures had outlined this practice. 
And so while we may view this as awkward and weird and strange and completely foreign, that it would not enter our minds to think it was common in that day. (laughs) But just because something is commonly accepted does not make it right. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end, its way is death. And so while the prevailing wisdom of Canaanite and Mesopotamian and Egyptian culture said, Sarai, wealthy, woman of prominence, you've not conceived, take one of your servants, give them over to your husband, allow her to conceive in her place, and that child will then be yours. While that may have seemed right to everyone around them, the only opinion that truly mattered, God's, it was not right. We often hear people say today about those of us who uh, believe the word of God is true, that we are on, quote unquote, the wrong side of history. And that we better wisen up and, and modernize and begin to think about certain things, practices that our culture has embraced. Because if not, we're going to be on the wrong side of history. Folks, we, we shouldn't give any thought whatsoever about what side of history we're on. We should give great thought to what side of God we are on. And Abram and Sarai were embracing a practice of the culture that God had said was wrong. And that God had said was not going to be the way in which this promise would be fulfilled. And they shortcut it. He listens. Do you notice? Abram, how does verse two end? Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Now we have a clue here in the way the text is written of how God sees this. You see, because in Genesis 16, Abram listens to the voice of Sarah. And this is not the first time, it's actually the second time that this same wording is used in the scripture. It's used the first time in Genesis chapter three. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden and God is pronouncing judgment upon them, he says this to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Here and in the following verses, three and four, our author uses language from the fall in Genesis three to make clear his point. This is disobedience. Now, husbands, don't think listening to your wife was the sin. (laughs) Okay, it was not sin for Adam to listen to Eve. It was not sin for Abram to listen to Sarah. It was sin because what they were suggesting was sinful. All right, but... The author intentionally uses that language. So we, our minds, having studied this and having received God's word here in Genesis, will immediately go to that. We'll immediately picture that. And and we'll do so here in just a moment in these next two verses as well, where we see Abram agreed to the sinful suggestion. Verse three, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Abram agrees. 
Just as Adam agreed with Eve who had taken of the fruit by being tempted by the serpent to eat of that tree which God had, not, had commanded them not to eat from, Abram now agrees with his wife. He agrees with Sarai. He agrees with the culture around him. He agrees with his pagan upbringing that this is a common practice. This is a practice that should be embraced. And so Abram does so. And he goes into Hagar and she conceives. When we compare verse four to verse one and the previous verses that had, that had shown us uh, Sarai's state, we, we should immediately be drawn to the, that Sarai had likely tried to conceive for decades and had failed. And while we're not told specifically that it was in one attempt that Hagar conceives, the scripture is written in such a way that that is what we will imagine. That immediately this shortcut succeeds. Immediately they get what they were looking for. Immediately this Egyptian servant, Hagar, is now going to bear a child for Abram. Just as Abram, in chapter 12, had allowed Pharaoh to take Sarai 10 years before to be his wife, now Hagar has allowed an Egyptian servant to take Abram, not as her husband, but in the act that only a husband should fulfill with a wife. And it is sin. And Abram has agreed and has sinned now. And again, here in these uh, verses, we see images from the original fall. We see where Hagar, where Sarai took Hagar. And after she took Hagar there in verse three, she gave Hagar to Abram. This mirrors Genesis 3, 6 with Eve, where we read, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she, what, took its fruit and ate. And she also, what, gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Make no mistake. Don't identify with Sarai and say, well, she was struggling. She, she had been barren and wanted a child and God had even promised a child and it seemed like she was far past those years. And so she's, she's only doing what's natural. Don't excuse Abram for saying, well, if the Canaanites were doing it and the Mesopotamians were doing it and the Egyptians were doing it, maybe they ought to have done it as well. See what the author of scripture is intending for us to see and that this, this action is and was sinful. View it in the immediate context of Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is the clearest vision that Abram receives from the Lord, at least to date, concerning the promise that God appears to Abram in, in this vision and promises that he will have children that outnumber the stars, that God makes the covenant that we saw between the, uh, the carcasses of dead animals last week, fire passing between them, representing the promise of God, this unilateral promise that God will keep his promise. And yet Abram is so quick to run towards solving it on his own, listening to Sarah and going into Hagar. And now 
the trouble begins. And we see ramifications of the shortcut. First is that animosity grows between all three parties. Look then in the middle of verse 4. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So just stop there for a moment. So Hagar sees that she's conceived. She has now done what Sarai could not do. In all her trying, immediately Hagar conceives. And it says that she looks upon her mistress with contempt. Now, the best way to think about this is that she became prideful. She became prideful. And we would say, hey, she's conceived a child, and in her mind, likely, she had done nothing wrong. Remember, she's Egyptian. She's had received no instructions or promise from God, and this was a common practice there in Egypt, and so she is glad that she was able to conceive. And her joy and gladness becomes evident to Sarai, who was unable to conceive. And there is a perception, at least, of contempt between the two. So this relationship is now damaged. And Sarai said, verse 5, to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked upon me with contempt. So may the Lord judge between me and you. So stop there with verse 5. So we've already seen now Sarai, Hagar, broken relationship. Now, Abram, Sarai, broken relationship. What what does Sarai do? She goes to her husband and says, this is on you, buddy. I Look, it was my idea, but you should have known better. I may have told you to do it, but you're the one that did it, right? She blames him. And before we're quick to mock Sarai for blaming him, Abram deserves the blame. The promise of God was to who? Abram. Who had seen the vision in the previous chapter? Abram. Who had left Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land that God would promise? Abram. Who was the one expected to be faithful before the Lord? Abram. Who was the one that wasn't? Abram. Sarai realizes that at some point during this pregnancy. And she turns on her husband and she says, you have done this to me and made this wrong be upon you and may the Lord judge between you and me. So we've already seen these broken relationships. Now, verse six, Abram, who's already taken a difficult situation and made it bad, is about to make it worse. This is what shortcuts do, right? We just keep shortcutting. We just keep making it worse. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Here's Abram's solution. Not wife, I'm sorry. Not Hagar, I'm sorry. Not, most importantly, Lord, I'm sorry. There's no hint of repentance now in Abram's voice. There is only a practical solution. And here is his practical solution. She's your servant. Do with her what you want. You're you're the one who gave her over to me. You're the one who can take her back. You're the one that controls her. So do as you would like to do. So this love triangle has gone from bad to worse. And Sarah deals harshly with her. 
meaning this joy that Hagar felt over this pregnancy has now turned to ash in her mouth as her master treats her harshly, harshly enough that she will flee into the wilderness, knowing that fleeing into the Judean wilderness means most certain death. And that's exactly what she does. We will find where she is fleeing in a moment, but they are living in the northern part of the Negev, south of Jerusalem. Anything south of there is wilderness, all the way to Egypt. It is a long, tough road, but that's where she goes. She flees all the way to the northern tip of Egypt, pregnant and alone, and then the Lord intervenes. Look with me in verse seven. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring of the way of Shur. So Shur is in this, north, this very southern section of the Negev, just before you get to Egypt. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing for my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So we see here, Hagar flees. She flees a long way, recognizing that certain death is imminent. This is the first of two times that we will see this happen with Hagar and Ishmael, where she flees, wandering into the wilderness, not knowing what will happen. And this is the first of two times that we will see the Lord directly intervene in her life. The Lord sends a messenger. This would be an angel. And says, what are you doing? Do you notice the, the question? Where have you come from and where are you going? Because this is an angel, a messenger from the Lord. He knew exactly where she had come from and he knew exactly where she was trying to go. But he's wanting to ask her this question, to have her come to an understanding of what's really going on. So he asks her, what, what, what are you doing? And she speaks plainly, I'm fleeing. I'm fleeing my mistress. But then he says, simply return. So the Lord here has intervened. The Lord has reached out into Hagar's life, this Egyptian servant who we would think is not very important to this story at all and makes a promise to her. Look at the promise. Verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered from, for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So here in the midst of this great disobedience and, and these, these broken relationships, Hagar flees into certain doom and the Lord intervenes. And what do we see? We see the goodness of God even in the face of sin. We see the goodness of God to this woman who really up until this point wasn't important at all in the story. Whom if Sarai and Abram had not chose to sin, we would never have been told that she even existed. And yet God is good to her. God remembers her. God listened to her in her affliction. And she will even name her son after that very fact. 
And he instructs her, return to your mistress, go back. And he gives her a promise that she can believe that he too, Ishmael, will be the father of a great nation. You see, Hagar and Ishmael are not the receivers of God's promise to Abram. They were never intended to be the receivers of God's promise to Abram. And we will see clearly by the spoken word of God in later chapters that they are not the receivers of God's promise to Abram. Ultimately, Isaac would be the one who the promise of God that he will make him into a great nation, that he will give him the promised land and that all of the nations of the world would be blessed through him would not come from this shortcut, but would come from the miraculous hand of God in in the life of Abram and Sarah. But even though they were not the receivers of God's promise to Abraham, they are the receivers now of a promise of God because God is good. And in her affliction, in her lowest moment, wandering the wilderness, trying to just get back to Egypt, God sees her. Keep that in your mind as we continue in the passage where we finally see Hagar bears Abram a son bringing generational consequences. Look at these last few verses. That continued promise there in verse 12, he shall be a wild So one, he's gonna, God's heard you, right? But here's what's gonna happen with your son. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone. And everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Just stop for a moment with verse 12. To, to, to think that an angel's gonna call the son, you know, the son that you're going to bear a wild donkey of a man. You may think, wow, that's a little harsh, isn't it? Um, there were wild donkeys that were more like horses than they were like donkeys in the Middle East. Um, but they were really hard to train. They were really hard to capture. They were nearly impossible to break. And that's what the Lord, the messenger of the Lord is saying about Ishmael. This is, this is going to be a guy that goes his own way. Ultimately, his hand's going to be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. This promise comes true in later chapters. So she called the name of the Lord, verse 13, who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. So Hagar recognizes that God has seen her in the wilderness, seen her in her despair, and has listened. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Laheroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. You say, why tell us this name? Why tell us about this well? Because remember, hundreds of years later, a people birthed out of the promise of God would free from their chains in Egypt, the same place that Hagar was running to. And Moses would tell them this story as he is writing it for preservation, ultimately for us to even read today. And while this well may be unknown to us, it would have been known to them. It would have still existed even during that time. It's a well that ultimately Isaac will even visit one day later in Genesis. So we're again seeing the story of Abram placed within the broader context of not only scripture, but of history. Then the chapter concludes with just a basic statement. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael, just as God had said. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael 
to Abram. God, through his messenger, has made a promise to Hagar concerning her son. It is first fulfilled here in verses 15 and 16, where we see that he is born and that his name truly is Ishmael. Ishmael's mentioned several other times in succeeding chapters, but I just want us to see two places quickly because I want us to understand that God does keep his promise. Even this promise made to an Egyptian servant girl out in the wilderness who is conceived because Abram and Sarai have chosen a path of shortcut and sin. In Genesis 17, we read, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. We'll consider this next week. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Now, if you know the story of Genesis, where we're going over the next several months, you know this, Abram fathers Isaac, who fathers Jacob, who fathers 12 sons, tribes of Israel. Yes? We kind of see this shadow image in Ishmael. In this promise that God gives to Hagar and then in chapter 17 to Abram himself, we see this shadow image that, that lurks in the corner. Ultimately, we get to Genesis 25 and we read this. These are the sons of Ishmael and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes. See, God does what he says he's going to do according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled in Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. So there, with child, God makes a promise to Hagar concerning her son. And in subsequent chapters, that promise is fulfilled because God is good. And yet those promises, those, those, that fulfillment of those promises carries with it great consequences. The immediate consequences is that Ishmael and his descendants would be exactly as God said they would be, that they would settle against, against all his kinsmen, meaning they would always be in direct conflict. We still feel these consequences today. There is a reason that Christianity and Islam stand opposed to one another. And do you want to know the divergent point? Right? Here, the divergent point is Ishmael. Was God's promise to Abram confirmed in him or in his son through Sarai, Isaac? Now we will know and affirm through God's word in subsequent chapters that it was clearly through Isaac, but great consequences came about because Abram and Sarai chose a short path to promise. So what? The Lord is gracious and faithful to keep his promises, but we are not free from the temporal consequences of our own disobedience. Know this, just as the Lord saw Hagar in her worst moment in the wilderness, heard her cry and was good to her, God is good to us. He sees us at our very worst. He sees us in our sin. And just as he had compassion upon her and hears her, he has compassion upon us and hears us. Make no mistake. God is gracious and faithful. Always. He is gracious and faithful in Genesis 16. And he is gracious and faithful today. And if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. 
If you will call out to him, recognizing your distress in your sin and that you cannot make a way on your own, he will make a way for you through Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel that we recognize this morning. But we must also recognize this. Just as Abram and Sarai, the receivers of the promise of God in the Old Testament, made their own way, chose a temporal path of sin, and later reap consequences of it, so do we, even those who are in Christ. When we choose the shortcut, when we choose the easy path, when we choose to make our own way against the direction of God, we reap temporal consequences because of that disobedience. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 writes about this truth in this way. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, this will, also he, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will be from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Galatians 6 isn't a story about investing money in the stock market. <laughs> it's not a story about building a business or speaking you know, positive words into the universe so that the universe will then do positive things for you. Galatians 6 is about our obedience or our disobedience to God. And when we sow obedience in faith, we reap the rewards of a faithful life before God. And when we sow disobedience in our own desire and in our own way, just as Abram and Sarai did in Genesis 16, we reap what God tells us we will reap, at least temporarily so. You see, because being a Christ follower does not instantly free you from the consequences of your bad choices. Fortunately, it does free you from the consequences, the eternal consequences of them. And as I've said, if we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. And we can trust that and believe that to be true, but recognize that we still have a responsibility in this life to do what Paul instructs here, not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Here's what we see in Genesis 16 as we close. Sarah and Abram gave up. They gave up thinking God was going to do what God had promised to them. And so they sought to do it on their own. And there were consequences for that. Church family, don't give up. <laughs> don't give up. Believe that God will do what he has promised to do. And here's what he's promised to do in your life. If you're a follower of him, he has promised to make you into the image of his son. He has promised to make you in the likeness of Christ. He has promised you that there is an eternal reward for those who are faithful to him now. So remain faithful to him, trusting even when you can't see how God will do it, trusting that he will because he is a gracious and faithful God. Let's pray together. Oh God. We are all, every one of us, man, woman, boy, and girl in this room, <laughs> prone to shortcut. We are prone to discouragement when we can't see the way in front of us and for thinking that we know better. Forgive us, God. Help us by the power of your spirit to choose obedience over disobedience. 
to choose your path over the world's path. Father, for the one in here who would call upon your name today, maybe even watching with us online, would they do so? Would they call out as Hagar did in the wilderness because you were a God that hears and you will hear their cry, forgive their sins. Father, for the many who are believers, would we rest in knowing that your way is best. And while we may not always understand your way, you will ultimately accomplish your will for your glory. And if it brings you glory, God, then it brings us good. Let us reap that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.